you may have noticed an updated name in your podcast feed today. I'm very pleased to announce our broader focus with an update to our name, Lit Up, A Founder's Journey. When I started this podcast a year ago, it was always my intention to highlight the pioneers of the new cannabis industry. Our old title was a little tech-focused. With The Founder's Journey, this opens me up to bring you all the amazing pioneers in this industry, from tech to agricultural, profit and nonprofit, social justice and government. You can find our updated website at litupfounders.com and on social at litupfounders. I'm looking forward to this journey. Just a quick note before we get into today's show. This was recorded on March 18th, 2020, in the early uncertain days of the COVID-19 pandemic. We touched on that throughout the interview, but didn't state it explicitly up front. I found the interview to be both timely and timeless. I hope you feel the same. So as a pilot, um, and I share this with my team on Friday, and it's, it's no better time than, than now, but as a pilot, every time you take off, you have to fill out what's known as a risk assessment, where you are assessing risk. And I think what the military has, has taught me is that there's a difference between risk and uncertainty. When I go out on a mission in, a, in an Apache helicopter, I'm identifying the known risks. And risks have to be known. Okay, what's the weather like? What's the enemy intel like? Okay, where are my friendly forces? Okay, what's my aircraft? How many hours has it had on the tail rotor? Here are my risks. I'm identifying these risks and risks are inherently negative and you wanna mitigate those risks. But there's also uncertainty. In uncertainty, you don't know the negatives. And quite frankly, you also don't know the positives that may come out of this. So to run with that metaphor, if I take off on a mission, I don't know what I'm going to encounter. I'm going to do my best, but I really don't know. And as entrepreneurs and at Jane specifically, we really work hard on delineating risk from uncertainty. We mitigate the risk, but we view uncertainty with open eyes, with presence, with awareness. We don't assign immediately, oh, this is negative because more times than not, as you know, as an entrepreneur, uncertainty creates opportunity behind that. And if we can navigate uncertainty the right way, um, I think we'll get on the other side of this and be better from it and we will have grown from it. And so that's the biggest lesson I've, at least the most relevant lesson today. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a show about the pioneers of the cannabis industry, the organizations they're building and the lives they're changing. These episodes feature the founders themselves sharing their journey and creating the most impactful ideas of the new cannabis industry. I'm Brian Weber. Socrates Rosenfeld, co-founder and CEO of Jane Technologies, shares with us how Grape Jolly Ranchers, the Allman Brothers Band, and Love all inspired him. This West Point graduate, Apache pilot, and MIT graduate made a big pivot in creating cannabis tech startup, Jane Technologies. Today, they are the largest retail e-commerce platform in cannabis, creating the new retail for dispensaries, their patients, and customers. Here's his journey. I'm Socrates, I'm the CEO. Um, My path to the industry is unique in the sense that I I, I never consumed cannabis until I was out of the army. in my late 20s, 29 years old, um, got out of the service. And um, like most veterans, the transition was 
a challenging time for me for many reasons, uh, particularly around the fact that I was stuck in fight or flight mode. Um, if you know anything about stress and that's really served me well as a combat commander making life and death decisions. And, um, when I was just a civilian, again, I couldn't find my, the ability to turn down that volume and yep. get out of fight or flight. I tried everything I possibly could, um, some healthy things, some unhealthy things. And ultimately, um, uh, was was uh, afforded the opportunity to try cannabis, and it uh, it changed my life. So from there, it uh, it's it sparked a real interest and passion within me because um, I felt uh, literally felt uh, all the positive effects that it was creating in myself. Started to talk to more veterans uh, and realized that you know at this time I was a student at MIT. If there was any way we could support this industry. Uh, moving forward, it would be an absolute dream come true. Right now, Chain Technologies, you guys are the leading e-commerce platform in, in cannabis. Yeah, we are the uh, the leading e-commerce provider. That's correct. Servicing now close to 1,400 dispensaries across the country. So, you know, depending on who you ask, it's close to one out of every three dispensaries in the U.S. And uh, we, we're not even three years old yet. So essentially what we're trying to provide is for the consumers, a shopping experience that replicates that of on Amazon, where you have convenience, you have curation, you have purchasing power. And now for the dispensaries, unlike Amazon, we support small businesses by automating their e-commerce. And, and in the cannabis world where an average dispensary carries 500 products on their store shelf, that's, that's uh, it's a need to have, not a nice to have. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to dive, you know, on your personal journey on how you got there and how and how building that company came from. So we're going to pause on the current state of affairs. We're going to get back to that in a bit. But like, I'd like to rewind a bit like you're growing up, you know, what was your family like? Where'd you grow up? I mean, I know you have a brother, Abraham, but uh, you grew up in Massachusetts. Um, but like, what was your family like growing up? You know, what was that time frame oh, for you? Not, not, I, we're going back. We're going to go back. No, it's we're, great. We're going to really, zip yeah. forward a bit, but like, this, I, I'm trying. Yeah, I, I want to give a little different perspective yeah. on you than some of the other podcasts. No, this is cool. Um, and I appreciate that question because yeah. it's, um, you know, where we're from, how we grew up shapes who we are today. Most and definitely. for me, I grew up in a very multicultural uh, household. Mm -hmm. um, my Mother is from Indonesia. She grew up there. Uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, was a uh, grew up in the jungles of Indonesia. He was kind of wow. a tribes chief in the jungle, believe it or not. Wow. So um, I grew up in, in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, I was always a different kid with a different name and yeah. different food at my house. Um, but really, I think that helped me a lot yeah. in, uh, as I grew into becoming a, a leader. Um, understanding different perspectives. Did you have, like, was there adversity, you know, cause, cause, you know, just from growing up, I'm assuming a predominantly Irish community, but, um, you know, in Boston, not just to make generalizations, but like, you know, being a, a kid with Indonesian background, did yeah, there some I adversity mean, you had to fight against? Um, no, not, there was there's certainly adversity for me growing up. Okay. Not so much, you know, I grew up in Newton, Mass. It's a very uh, predominantly very progressive liberal suburb. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was normal to have a, uh, you know, multicultural household and speak different yep. languages. And that was that was welcome both in the schools and, and amongst my, my friends. Um, where I started to feel adversity, though, was during my time at, at, at West Point. Okay. Um, that really, for me, was the first time in my life, not the first time in my life, but as a, as a kind of conscious 
young man trying to figure out who I was. And, um, you know, in the, in the military, particularly at West Point, um, you have to change. Uh, you, you can't, you can't, this, this is why, you know, basic training is so extreme is, is you take a civilian who's, who's used to one way of life and then, mm-hmm. you know, essentially training them to make life and death decisions. And, and for me, that was challenging on so many different levels as an 18 year old young kid who's just trying to figure life out yeah. all the way to, you know, a future military leader who's going to be in charge during a time of war being responsible for, for people's lives. Um, so that was a very, it was a very trying time for me. Um, I can, I could, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine that cause I've never served. And again, um, you know, I'll just say this, but thank you for your service to our country. Thanks, but, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I found that, you know, obviously you went to MIT, your brother as well. Um, you guys just, even just on the face of that appear to be extremely driven people. What were some of the values that at home that your your parents instilled with you? What were some of those lessons that you guys had at home that made it there? That's just not by chance. I always look at like Rahm Emanuel and his like his brothers, like they're just right. really successful in many different areas, but success is just such a core thing to 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 that family as well. So Yeah. You know, we it's um it's it starts really from my mom, um, where she defines success for herself as the ability to help people, um, the ability to be herself um, in a world where maybe not so many people can actually say that. Um, And so I feel really blessed that she created a household where her children could be themselves, um, could pursue their passions without, you know, just being kids and being curious without wondering, does this make me weird? I I signed up for... um, for Broadway musicals That's in awesome. elementary school. I was the only guy, you know, with sequence stuff on dancing to Cabernet songs and uh, somewhere someone has photos that they're going to use as blackmail. That is fantastic. I, you got to find um, your own success though. You got to find, you got to let your kids explore and find what their passions are. And that's, that's that for me, that's really what's, you know, and it's a great question. That's what my mom did. She didn't say, Hey, sock, you're going to do this. And Abe, you're going to go do that it was less so we're going to define success, not on what you're going to do, but who you are going to become. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you start with that context first, what you do doesn't define who you are, who you are defines who you are. And we apply that whether or not I'm a military commander, whether I'm a consultant at McKinsey, yep. whether I'm a student at MIT or right now currently as a, as a CEO of Jane. That's a, that's an excellent foundation to start with. And no wonder where you guys are in the positions that you are right now. So thanks. Thank, thanks thank to all the moms out there who, in, uh, who empower the, uh, the kids of the world. So, okay. So you're growing up in Massachusetts and, you know, obviously you, you went to, to West Point, um, which is, which is quite amazing. What prompted that service <laughs> to your country? It's a great question. I, um, I'll be honest with you at the age of 18, I wasn't thinking of, m- much about patriotism or, or kind of service to my country. I really wanted to, um, help people mm-hmm. and I wanted to challenge myself. And, um, to be honest with you, I didn't have a lot of money for school. Um, and so, uh, I walked into West Point less so from a kind of patriotic view, but more so on an individual journey and adventure to say, okay, I'm going to step you know, into these gray walls and, and see what happens. And then from there, I started to really 
you know, for all the, the things that West Point challenged me on, some of the most beautiful things that came out of it was I got to make friends with people from Alabama and North Carolina and Alaska and realize, man, no matter where we come from, at the end of the day, we're all going through this experience, whatever that is, together. Um, and you can be as micro or as macro as you want on that. And um, those words mean a lot more today than uh, I think have recorded this last week. But um, but we'll yeah. get, we'll get to that in a moment. But um, yeah, you found a shared experience. There is is really what it is. A, a shared experience around. Um, we're, we're and we we I've, I've I've tried to replicate this at Jane at the company where Jane is a vehicle through which the individual can grow and pursue that which they're passionate about. Okay. And, and West Point limiting on, you know, where you could go and pursue your passions, but it was certainly a place that said, Hey, if you want to build yourself and grow here, here are the conditions upon which you can do that. And I think, um, you see that with a lot of the graduates coming out of schools like that. I mean, it obviously gave you the, 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 the boundaries that you had to live within, but it gave you those channels that you could, uh, ex, uh, you could excel through at that, at that point. Yeah. It's funny, you know, Sometimes the more limiting a circumstance really teaches you how to be innovative, resourceful, and, and um, realize that uh, you can you can get through a lot of things that you maybe thought w- you weren't able to get through at the beginning, from a physical standpoint, from a mental standpoint, certainly from an emotional standpoint. And that's what those four years at West Point provided for me. Uh, when you go into West Point, though, do you follow certain tracks that you want to go after? I mean, how, you ended up in an Apache helicopter, which is a very specific tract. Uh, yes. uh, was that by choice? Was that by assignment? Was that by, was there a draw the hat someday? <laughs> and you're like, oh, you fit in the, uh, the you, you fit in the pilot uniform that we have. So you're it. <laughs> it's a great question, Brian. It's, um, <laughs> you know, the military and particularly West Point, these military academies, they, they, you were born into competition. Okay. Um, and you realize that it's not a zero sum game that you can compete within a team. Mm-hmm. And at West Point, uh, for better or worse, everything you do is graded and you are ranked on everything you do from day one to the end. Um, and you are ranked against your classmates. So mm-hmm. whether that's academic, uh, physical or, or military, you get assigned a, a ranking they put that together and then junior year, that's when you get to have some choice. Gotcha. You decide, you pick kind of um, uh, your, your branch. And then from there you get to decide, uh, you know, where you want to post. And so I was fortunate enough to, I wasn't certainly by any stretch of imagination top of the list. I'm assuming uh, though the, uh, the, the top guys are, uh, you know, they get a little more options for what they yes, want to do. It, yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 this is just a, <laughs> story of my life you know i'm just i'm just enough to get you know aviation or apaches but uh yeah so so that was your choice then to to to, to pursue um to be an apache pilot then it was it was okay. actually um i had two friends uh, i had three very very close friends of mine um and we all sat down two of them wanted to go aviation one of them wanted to go uh sorry one of them wanted to go aviation two of them wanted to go infantry and i was split Mm-hmm. And, uh, I honestly, I flipped the coin and Ooh. yeah, that's, that's how it works. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that I've, I've taken the path that I've taken. 
That's awesome. That's excellent. So you went through all that. Was there some advanced training? Is there like a forgive oh, yeah. me, like a graduate school for for that kind of thing? If you can put it into to yeah. traditional college parlance for us yes, military you, folk. You look, yeah, you you graduate from uh, West Point. You get your your degree, bachelor's yep. of, of science, mm-hmm. um, and then we I got uh, uh, orders to go to flight school down in Fort Rucker, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, and was there flight school generally is about a year. And then okay. it's another six months on top of that for Apache pilots. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. That's, yeah. uh, that's amazing. Um, I don't want to skip over that fact cause it is probably a whole interview story on its own thing. Um, yeah. but so you, how long did you served in the, in the military till 2011? Is that correct? 2011. So I was at, on active duty for seven years. Okay. And what theaters did you serve in? I served um, in Korea, okay. where I was a platoon leader, and then um, I served in Iraq as a company commander. Okay. Uh, I was stationed in, in uh, Baghdad. Um, what were some of the probably the biggest takeaways that you had from your time there? And I'm looking at now, like looking at from 2020 back, um, not not from at that time. Um, and then my follow-up question is be that, why did you end up leaving? Hmm. Yes, great questions. Um, thank you for asking. Really, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. questions, man. Um, man, there's so many takeaways out of the military. Yeah. Um, what, what I've said in the past, and uh, at least it makes sense to me, is that my time in the military showed me the extremes of human emotion. Um, uh, you know, in times of boredom, you're really bored. I don't know if boredom's an emotion, but you, you kind of, it's extreme there. And people, you know, often ask me what was deployment like? And it was, you know, long periods of boredom with short spurts of, you know, fear and, and chaos. Yeah. Um, I, but really most importantly, you know, love is really love. Uh, and that's actually, I, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't use the L word. Uh, at the time, I thought it was leadership, the other L word. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I actually stepped out of the uniform that I realized looking back that, you know, we did some pretty remarkable things as a team, as a unit. The majority of, of my soldiers didn't go to MIT. In fact, mm-hmm. none of them did. Um, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, b- born of, you um, you know, a silver spoon in their mouth. There was, everybody had challenges. And uh, I remember looking over one time on an aircraft and then seeing a a 19 year old soldier, you know, opening up my engine cowling, fixing an engine in the middle of, you know, a mission and just thinking, man, uh, this is love, whether or not we want to call it, we're, we're, we're either, loving our, our fellow soldier. We're loving the mission. We're loving the job that we're doing, but in, in your life's time, that, in that guy's hands. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people don't talk about love, but really it's, that's, that was my biggest takeaway is that, um, you know, we talk about leadership, but behind leadership, you got to have love and wow. that is trust. It's communication. It's honesty. It's openness. It's, um, it's being selfless. That is and such a great independence upon which any great unit is built, whether you're wearing a uniform or in a rock band or a sports team or a, a tech company, um, there's got to be love there. And that's something that I've, I've taken from the military and now applying here. 
So with all much all this love in the military, um, why did you end up leaving? I feel frustrated as a um, as a military leader. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here I was. We had a we had at least two Apache helicopters in the air twenty four seven. Out of a fleet is, of, out of a fleet of how many? Out of a fleet of we had eight okay. assigned to our company so we're always in the air so 25 percent always running the other always imagine yeah. that maintenance Oof. and supply chain and it's pretty remarkable but um uh so we had that and we were up in the air 365 days out of the year and i felt so limited in my ability to help people and um i was reading this book on deployment it was called a fistful of rice and it was talking about microfinance and how microfinance is, is being used. And for those that don't know microfinance, mm-hmm. it's a very small, small loan. You are talking like $25. Yeah. But this is being given to the poorest of the poor across the world. And just seeing the data coming out of that of how, you know, this is now helping families and kids are going to school and they're fed and, you know, loans are being paid back and businesses, micro businesses are, are starting. And I was so inspired by it that I thought, you know, I, I could go down this military road and it wasn't an easy decision for me, Brian. I had, yeah. um, you know, I had gone to ranger school. I was West Point. I was a combat commander. You went deep. Yeah. Yeah. I went deep. That's you exactly definitely right. went deep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was a part of me that said, man, am I turning my back on my brothers and sisters, you know, during wartime? And that was, mm-hmm. and I think every veteran thinks about that. And if they don't, they're lying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to go and see if I could kind of take off the the left and right boundaries mm-hmm. and go and pursue something, whether that's in the nonprofit world or the for-profit world that would ultimately be helping people on a much grander scale rather than me sitting in a cockpit flying around Baghdad, which was helpful. And yeah, it a service. Um, but I, in the back of my mind, I wondered, is there potentially a better way of, of helping people? And uh, I, I made the decision to get out in 2011. Okay. And then um, from there, you went back to the States. You went back to school, right? Is that correct? You went to... Yeah, it wasn't... <laughs> I, um, I, uh, it wasn't that easy. I got out. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do. I you just... freelan- can you freelance? Can you, like, can you pilot a regular helicopter and just I do could, tours? And I you know? <laughs> yeah, my, my instinct um, told me, like, hey, man, don't go, don't go back to what you know. It's very tempting to do that. You know, go work for the police force or fire department, go be in the reserves. There's a logical tra- transition from that. It's exactly right. And uh, for whatever reason, and this has been consistent across all my life, if I'm going to go and do something, I'm going to go 100%. Wow. And so God bless my wife. Um, very grateful for her. I, uh, we had no idea. I remember driving our pickup truck up to Boston and just being like, Man, I have no idea what we're gonna do. Uh, long. I didn't, story, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to skip over that. When did you get yeah. married? Actually, just from a timeline perspective. I got married in uh, two thousand. Uh, sorry, I met my wife in two thousand four. I got married in two thousand seven. Okay, so you were married. You were you were yeah. in the service almost the entire time then, and you were oh, deployed yeah. largely that all that time too. Yeah, which you know, on a day like today of all days, right? Yeah. Leading a business in a time of uncertainty. I'm very fortunate. My wife and I have have have, have done this before. We okay. found ourselves in a very similar position time and time again, which is uh, we're grateful for. And that relationship um, you draw strength from from each other. So uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's uh, I, I couldn't do it without her straight up. Um, 
Uh, and she'd probably tell you that, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, but anyways, I, um, so, so, you, so she's, she's, she's with you on this, on this journey. Of here. So you're driving back up to Boston and you're like, well, what are we going to do? We gonna do? <laughs> I, uh, I said, okay, Hey, let's, let's, you know, I have friends from West point that left, went to business school. Let me talk to them. What is business school? I'll apply. But in that year where I had no plan, Brian, it was a blessing in disguise because what I was able to do was uh, realize that um, not getting a paycheck was not, it was scary, but it wasn't, the world didn't collapse. And uh, again, thank you, thankful to my, mom, my wife, um, who's a massage therapist who you know, made ends meet. But ultimately, I was able to go to Guatemala with her, uh, working with Grameen Bank, a microfinance, largest microfinance nonprofit organization. Um, in, in Guatemala, spent some time there learning on the ground, realized some wonderful things. Uh, mm-hmm. the, Guatemala is a wonderful country. Realized that uh, I, I maybe um, wanted not to do nonprofit at that time. And okay. I want to say, hey, I think we can be even more effective for profit. Um, and I just had the appetite for it. And so I spent that year connecting with myself again, connecting with my, um, my wife again, uh, connecting with my loved ones again and connecting with cannabis for the very first time. Okay. And to be honest with you, Brian, if I had gone, and this is for any military veterans that are listening, if I had gone from, you know, a high op tempo to a job or right to school or, or something right away, I don't know if I would have had that forced pause to take a look around me and, um, explore other parts of my, my life, um, and myself that, I would otherwise probably have have ignored if I just went right into a right into something else, right into the next logical thing that you need to go into. Exactly right. So you were in Guatemala then, right? Did, did I hear I that correct? Okay, I so was. you were there for for a while. With I was there for about three months. Okay, um, there traveling around and and uh, helping out, and then for the the, mean, the remaining nine months, I was doing work for them out of out of Boston. Okay. Okay. Wow. So that's a, that's a, I mean, I love how open you are to like, just throw yourself into it. Here's the deep end. Let's, uh, let's, let's just, let's just do this. And I realized, did you you find an amazing wife too? So yeah, you you can't, um, I'm realizing more and more that, uh, you know, at least for me, what makes sense in in my mind is, uh, I'm meant to experience all the experiences. Yeah. we're not even halfway through the story yet. Uh, you know what I mean? Like we're we're here to do that, and uh, if I have you know one foot in, one foot out, am I really experiencing this fully? And and I mean not just experiencing the good times, yeah, experiencing it fully, and with the good times must you know mean not so good times. So so you had said that you you know obviously you were dealing with reintegration, dealing with getting back in society, and then you tried some cannabis to see if that could help as well. So yeah. I didn't want to cut you off from that story. So if you can no. continue from there, yeah, I um, I will never forget. I, I consumed cannabis for the first time, um, and uh, you know, like with most people, their first time, you know, is it working? What am I supposed to feel? I was scared. Yeah. I was yeah. really scared. I was like, "Oh man, I, what if what's going to happen to me?" Um, you know, you believe all the the, the nonsense that uh, you're you're told as a child. All the, all the reefer madness. Yeah. yeah, it's just untrue. Um, and I'd like to talk about that too. But uh, absolutely, my experience was I was with my brother uh, Abe, mm-hmm. one of my best friends, Ben Green, who's also a co-founder of Jane. 
um, another one of our friends and my wife, and I was in a really safe space and uh, they had gone to bed. And I remember lying down on the couch. I had, this is too detailed, but it's all right. No, no. Uh, I had a, uh, I had a grape Jolly Rancher in my mouth and I was listening to the Almond Brothers play. Okay. And I had never felt that sense of, uh, peace in a very long time. That's awesome. In a very long time. Was it like a and mental? Think, was it a mental and physical piece as well, or was it? Uh, yeah. Just, okay. It was. A, it, was a, it was an emotional piece. I felt like uh, you ever had those childhood memories where you're riding your bike on a summer day or playing baseball or something, whatever that is. Super vividly. Yep. And right? exactly and, that moment. Yep. And I had that moment as a 29 year old military veteran sitting on my couch in Boston, and I thought wow, I forgot what this felt like. I hadn't felt this in a long time. And uh, from there, obviously, it set, set forth a, a chain of events uh, where I find myself now. But ultimately, what it did was it made me question all the things that I assumed to be truth mm -hmm. that I had not cemented in my own mind as truth, that I just took off the shelf from my parents or my teachers or coaches or commanders and here I was consuming a product that I was told was so bad, made you dumb, made you lazy, all these different things. And it was helping me and giving me peace and, you know, helping me connect with my wife again and my family and my friends and ultimately myself. And I thought, what other things in my life have I just assumed to be true that I've just taken without really seeing if this is true for me? Wow. And uh, I felt pretty late in the game on that. This, you know, usually people figure this out in college, et cetera, or maybe they never figure it out. But for me, I felt really blessed that I could figure that out at, at 29. The time that I did. Yeah, that's a that's an amazing and the Almond Brothers uh, and a grape jolly rancher. I like that. Yeah. That's that's, that's a very that's it, paint a picture. I love it so much. Cool. Um, so that changed things for you then. So you're it's there, amazing. and it helped you. Uh, at that point, what was next? What was that next journey? What was those? Now you're questioning a lot of these assumptions that are out there. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm assuming in the military, like it comes down, that is the way it is. And oh. you, you you do that. And that is, oh, that. Yeah. You're, you're not there oh, to question I and figure things out. You're there to execute that mission. So this is a bit of a paradigm shift for, for you on this. So exactly. what does that lead exactly. into next then? What is that? What, is, what doors does that open up for you? Um, really, it couldn't have come at a better time. So I was talking to more and more military veterans and I was, I was embarrassed and ashamed to like tell them that I was consuming cannabis. But the moment I did more times than not, I was so shocked, like talking to Navy SEALs and green berets and older general officers. And they were like, Oh man, I actually, I, I, I've kept this. I will never forget talking to a Navy SEAL. And he told me he, he was given a joint at a party. And he sneaks off from his family and takes two puff of the joint. And that's the only way he goes to sleep. Mm. He's like, man, this is the only thing that helps me. And I thought, wow, okay. I, I gotta be able to do something in this, in this industry at the time, Colorado just legalized Washington, just legalized. Mm -hmm. I was a student at MIT in the years, 2012, 2013 at the time. And I thought, man, I really love technology. I love cannabis. And, uh, you know, if there was ever a way I could combine those two worlds, it would be a dream come true. And you know what I told myself, Brian? I, uh, as for all these things that I'm telling you, I, you know, oh, I, I uh, 
I, I didn't take anybody else's word for it. I want to make my own word. I convinced myself that I wasn't an entrepreneur because in the military, no one ever tells you you're an entrepreneur. No, that probably never <laughs> happens. Yeah. Right. But you are, we are, we're, we're limited resources, ambiguous, uncertain objectives. And you, you got to go and meet. You got to figure it out. Yeah. You got to figure it. Exactly. You got to figure, figure it out. out. Just, like, just like you're doing right with your, with your pockets. We're figuring mm-hmm. everything out. And, um, I convinced myself that I wasn't ready. Um, and that, you know, for whatever good, bad, otherwise <clears throat> I shifted out to Silicon Valley. You were for uh, McKinsey for a bit, right? Or for McKinsey for a bit. And all that time I was, you know, I had this idea about chain. I was starting to study more online marketplaces and I just had this, this annoying little voice. Oh, you can't do I, that. I'm not going to call that annoying voice, but yes, I know that voice very well. You get the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all have that voice and whatever we want to name it. Yeah. Annoying is probably being too kind to it, but, um, <laughs> I remember sitting down another vivid memory of mine in front of a CEO and I was a consultant at McKinsey at the time. And uh, here's the CEO. We had prepped, you know, three months to do this crazy presentation and everybody was so nervous. And I hear I, I was the first CEO in quotes that I would ever meet. And I thought, Oh my God, this guy's going to be, you know, a deity. He's, he's something. I can't be this, whatever yeah. it is. He just walked in. He was just a normal guy. Just a normal dude. Just a normal dude trying to solve um, problems, trying to trying to make try to make things happen. And I was like, "Hold on, I'm also I'm a normal dude, and, and <laughs> it, it, you know, nothing against this gentleman." But I yeah. was like, "If this guy can do it, then I'm going to do it." And uh, it's a very empowering moment. And uh, as 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 we continue to grow, and mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's now our our time to go and climb that mountain. Let us mm-hmm. not forget the next generation and how, um, how important it is sometimes to just talk to them and say, Hey, you can do this too. Yep. You yep. know, and you, you can do whatever it is that I know it sounds so cliche. The battles that you fought in your head are a lot worse than what reality is. And they're probably very different than what reality is going to throw your way. Cause you never know what's around the corner, right. uh, which is very ironic saying that right now. So, <laughs> so what was, what was that spark moment? And like, I always try to find that moment. Yeah. And I remember watching like the, uh, Seinfeld, uh, before Jerry moment. And he talked about it, like, he was sitting on like, he named the street intersection. He was like, I was sitting on like a window of some bank somewhere. And he's like, I'm going to be a comedian. And like, everything changed after that. What was, what was that moment like for you? Okay. So it's not as dramatic as, uh, as Jerry's. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, yeah. of Seinfeld, but um, <laughs> I was on a study studying online marketplaces at McKinsey. And so I was studying Amazon and Airbnb and Grubhub and 1-800-Flowers and Zappos and uh I was talking to the business owners who had built those businesses and they were like, man, this is a, a great business model. It's really hard, but if you can do it, you can create access. And, um, uh, and for ultimately for the consumers, what I loved was that it provided the purchasing power back to the consumer. So I just fell in love with this business model and <laughs> I would, you know, as a consultant, you get on that grind of, getting on the airplane on Monday, coming back home on a Thursday night. So I was out of the house a lot. And then on the weekends, I'd find myself, you know, coming down to Santa Cruz. I was living in Palo Alto at the time, an hour north. And uh, coming down on the weekends, or going for a surf, 
hanging out with my friends and then ordering cannabis, but having to go into the store, I never know what's available. I look on their online menu. It's always out of date. There are no descriptions. You know, here I was, I was like, man, I would like to be able to order my cannabis. Mm -hmm. Like I order my Grubhub meal to my hotel. Like I find my flight on Sunday night to go, you know, depart. Um, I have the ultimate purchasing power. Like I order everything on Amazon Mm -hmm. and I, Talk to my, I remember I talked, first screen was to my wife. Okay. I told, it was on her birthday that I told her the idea, February 1st and uh, of 2015. And I said, hey, what if you, if I could do this? And uh, I've pitched her a hundred ideas minimum. And she'll and she, shoot oh, us through those, right? All day, all day oh, long? Okay. Oh, and, and happily and proudly. Okay. Uh, but that's what, I mean, like you want that honest feedback and who's going to be oh, more honest with you than, than your wife, so. And, and uh I'll never forget. I was, it was like this, you know, you know, in these, uh, when you expect someone to say something and you're like, Oh yeah, that was a bad idea anyways. Yeah. And, and uh, I had to pause and be like, did you say it's actually a good idea? And she's like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I was like, Oh, okay. So then the, my next call was to my brother, Abe. Um, actually he, he had just finished. He had his two degrees from MIT. He was at a startup where he was employee number one Ooh. living, uh, a great, a very successful startup. Uh, he's doing a great job, living a great life. Um, you know, and I called him up and, uh, again, he's told me no, every time they have tried to get him onto bad ideas, like, come on over, let's start a company together. <clears throat> and I told him this idea and his first words were like, shit. And so he, he knew, um, before kind of, I did where this was going to go. Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was at that moment, I, I'll never forget, it was a Sunday, I called my brother, I was driving with my wife, I was actually going to get on an airplane for a, Mc, a McKinsey study on a Sunday night, which for those that have ever done that, it's no fun, but um, I, had, I had a little spark, Brian. I, I literally, yeah. I, I felt a little, little flame in my belly, and I was like, man, I got to protect this. And so this idea that I just you know pursued on the weekends, early mornings, late at night, just slowly, slowly till those early mornings started to bleed into the day. And I got a little funding and, and the, the first investor put money into the company said, cool, when are you, when's the earliest you can leave McKinsey? And I, I was like, whoa. Uh, How yeah. did you find that first investor though? I mean, obviously it passed the two biggest tests, your wife and, and your brother. You got that energy inside of you that we all, any entrepreneur knows. And you're just like, you can't type quick enough and you can't yes. write quick enough. And like, yes. it's got to get on paper. And you're like, what are my revenue streams in here? Yes. How does this make sense? How do we scale this? Like, what does yes. this look like? What is my end goal for this? He was a classmate of mine from MIT, successful entrepreneur and investor in his own right. And his intention of going to MIT was meeting potential entrepreneurs. And I remember calling him, walking around. Uh, I was on the phone walking around Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And I'll never forget what he said. He's like, you know, it's 2015 at the time. And I'm pitching him, you know, we're going to build the Amazon of cannabis. And uh, he was like, uh, this is a, he called it a flyer. This is a flyer. This is a long shot. But Sock, I know you. And more importantly, I know your brother. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I know, it, 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 you know, I'm going to bet on you guys. Um, if you pass that kind of sniff test, the best investors I know, uh, best coaches, best teachers, et cetera, it's about, you know, the, 
the character of the entrepreneur. That's what they're betting on. Because mm-hmm. as you said it, there's too much uncertainty and chaos. Uh, today is a great example of that. Yep. Are, you a, are you a real entrepreneur that is here for something more than fame, recognition, you money. Know, yeah. money, all that stuff? Are you is something burning in your belly that's that it, it it's it goes so much deeper than that um and i think that the best investors are able to suss that out yep. and the best entrepreneurs are able to tap into that and and quite frankly light those flames within their employees bellies as well when did you pull the trigger on leaving mckinsey and when did your brother pull the trigger on, on leaving his startup was that like oh, the yeah. next kind of were you guys doing like nights and weekends kind of thing oh yeah so I had a, another f- friend of mine, Ben Green, who was in that mm-hmm. same room when I uh, consumed cannabis for the first time. Um, so he, uh, the way it worked out was I, I left McKinsey. And by, by the way, McKinsey is such a wonderful organization. Mm-hmm. They're built that way and they know. And I told them what I was going to do. And uh, to their credit, they said, hey, best luck. of luck to you. If, if you ever need to come back, let us know. We're here to help. But Good luck. No judgment, nothing like that. And I thought, wow, that's really great. So January 1st, 2016 was my first day into my new uh, my new life. And uh, I remember sitting down at my kitchen table being like, okay, cracking my knuckles and being like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> um, and it was terrifying. It really was. But uh, in a good way, though, like there's always that healthy it. scared and then there's that there's a shark swing around me, like in the middle of the ocean, kind of scared. Like that's real fear right there of death. Right. Uh, and and frankly, you probably know that more than a lot of people from your experience in, you know, in a, in a helicopter getting shot at. This was healthy fear, though, because worst case scenario, you just go back and get your job at McKinsey. That's what that's what it, it's exactly right. And that's what I realized is that that feeling we call it fear, whatever you want to call it. But on the other side of that. Oh, man, what a, what an experience to be had. Yeah, it's, it's uh, how to interpret that. that energy that you have in your in your gut right there. Yeah, and now when you get that, right? We get it today. We got it yesterday. We, everybody's feeling that. You know that, okay, I'm feeling a certain way. I'm not trying to run away from it. I'm not trying to ignore it. I'm going to feel it. And um, by feeling it, you're going to go through it, and it will reveal whatever it needs to reveal. Yep. So, um, so you're sitting there January 1, unemployed, Doing that, we doing, um, doing your thing, doing my thing. What did the first few months of the the company oh. look like? When did you get to your um, MVP? You like to have something up and running, and and also yeah. the follow up question after that was, who was your first sale? Oh man! So oh. we got those those two. Was your okay. MVP? When's your first sale? Cool MVP. We get we are literally waking up at five a.m. in the morning every day on the West Coast to uh, remotely dial in to our remote developers in uh, Russia. Okay. We're trying to piece this thing together and I'm leading it and I don't, I'm not a technologist. And my brother's still working on the weekend, so he's not really involved. Um, and uh, we get to a full year and God bless those developers, our remote developers out there and they're, they're fantastic. But we're like, okay, we're going to launch. Maybe we should put this in front of a like a dev studio in the U.S. Because once we launch, we're going to need some support. And um, that dev studio out of Seattle, uh, they're phenomenal. They, um, I remember them sitting us down. It was an in-person meeting. And they basically said, hey, guys, um, all everything that you guys built, we're going to need to rebuild that. And that was my reaction, Brian, of pretty much... 
Just I, like, I know this video right now and you can't hear this, but like I've just I've heard this story a few times. I'm covering my mouth and I'm like, I know what he was going to say before he said it. And because I've, you know, we've heard this on a previous podcast I've done as well with uh, some other tech startups. And they're like, yeah. it's all garbage. It's this all garbage. It's either like this won't scale. This exactly. isn't going to do the solution here. And uh, just like we were talking about earlier during those times, you know, how you address it. If we cowered and gave up and just said, man, we're running out of money. We don't have a product. What's going on? We don't know what we're doing. Let's give up. We said, okay, cool. What is it forced us to be like, what is the literal absolute minimum viable product we need to get out there? We didn't what, have, yeah, go ahead. But what, what did they recommend though? Were you taking like something that was like an open source off the shelf? Not to get too technical. And I'm, I'm, I actually don't like, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to have a technical answer on this one. But yeah, like, yeah. did you take something that was open source off the shelf and then like, hey, we can make this our own, something that had already been proven as a modular uh, no. scalable item? <laughs> that would have probably been the, the good way. We built this from the ground up. Okay. There was no test code, like stuff that we didn't even know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was just, it was, it was poorly, it looked really good on the front end. Of course it does. They always make it look shiny. It's just duct tape and smiles. Um, <laughs> so duct tape and uh, smiles. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, so anyways, <laughs> every, every, you read all the great companies that's they all started that way. Um, yeah. and it really forces you to be like, cool. What problem am I solving? And what is the absolute minimum piece of technology? What is the minimum tool I need to provide to fix this problem? And mm-hmm. so, the big piece for us was our ability. And this is based on my brother's, um, uh, his work and he's an expert in it. Uh, and I'm, I'm a proud older brother. He's probably one of the best systems integrators in the world, but he has the ability. He found out the ability early on to integrate into inventory systems and in real time automate digital menus for small businesses. So everything sitting on a physical store shelf, imagine today, Yep. Wanted to know, hey, what's in the pharmacy? What's at the grocery store? Can I see this in real time? We have that technology and it's um, they have a few patents. But in retail, it's the exact same product being sold at two separate stores. In the back end, that SKU will be represented quite differently or maybe mm-hmm. slightly differently. You know this, right, Brian, yeah. in your work? And so what we've done is we've, we have the ability to cleanse that data, uh-huh. standardize that taxonomy so that it's completely hands-free for retailers. Now they just scan stuff into their point of sale or inventory system. And in real time, that's populating with the correct description, taxonomy. It's in there. So it's not just their UPC. Like you have a way to identify it with your own SKU that you throw onto that and it cleans yeah. up that data for them. That is going to really be a huge advantage to you guys for your implementations. Because I know whenever I go into a new client, the biggest part of our project is cleaning out just ugly data. Uh, Imagine. I'm sure that's there. Yeah, imagine a day like today, Brian, mm-hmm. right? Where 100% of orders in California, at least in cannabis, is online. You know, a, a dispensary is carrying on average 500 SKUs at their store. Could you imagine in this crazy, chaotic, uncertain time, having to hand jam and manually maintain a digital menu? It's 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 almost impossible. So that was a that was a key value add to your technology from the beginning on that one. Um, yeah. And was this other was there a consulting company in, in Seattle? What was like what was their role on this one? Were they doing the dev for you guys? So they were they your were outsourced doing, dev. Yeah, they were doing like they the deserve dev. a plug on the on the podcast. What was uh, who who are they? Their design the design firm the design studio is called Substantial out of Seattle. Okay, that's in the business. Uh, 
yeah, we're, we're huge fans. And loving them from the beginning on that. So, okay. So you guys, you guys are getting your MVP up right now at this point and thrown out most of the code from, from yeah. our Russian friends. You realize where you can be cheap and where you can't be cheap. And, uh, for a software company, don't get cheap on your software. On the, on the good, devs. Good rule. Okay, so you're you had a, this aha moment of like, oh, the past year, mm, you know, doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really mean anything now. Um, I just burned through a bunch of cash. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was in, in, there's that little annoying voice. See, you know, CSOC, You should have stuck to consulting or being a pilot. You're not a tech guy. You don't know how to code. That voice. And um, you know, it's uh, I'm glad I didn't listen to that voice. So. How was your investor throughout all this? Um, he was he was great. Okay. He was a single investor at the time. Okay, um, and uh, we were. He basically was like, "Cool, man. Um, if you hit zero, you hit zero. It's been a fun ride, uh, but you don't have a product." And I remember talking to him. I was you know pacing in some parking lot. <laughs> he was like, "Cool, man. Uh, you know I'm I'm here for you as a sounding board, but I probably don't have." A, other, you know, I don't have more money for you <laughs> in 12 months and don't have a product. So, um, we That's launched cool. with no photos, no dis- product descriptions, Ooh. um, other than our own, we had, uh, that's a crazy story in and of itself. It's amazing what limited resources will do to you yeah. in terms of forcing you to, to identify priorities, which is why we never want to get too, um, too fat, dumb, and happy as a company because you start making some very complacent decisions, in my opinion. We like a little bit of limited resources. keeps you hungry. keeps you sharp. Um, So, But uh, we launched on, of all days, April 20th of 2017. As well as you should. You can't make that up. It was not by design. It was like, cool, we have this. Let's go next week. And it was 420. And um, couldn't think of an uh, appropriate day. Uh, what was your, what was your, who was your first customer on that one? So you guys went live with this customer. I mean, they actually it probably wasn't even oh, we, your first sale. <laughs> this wasn't your first sale. You're like, hey, we're trying this out. Can we just plug in and see if this works? That's exactly right. And we went door to door. And this is, this is not the same industry that we know today as it was three years ago. Literally, you would go and maybe you'd get to the back room where the decision maker was. And usually the decision maker in the back room was smelling flour and being like, yeah, we'll take a pound of this or a pound of that. And here we were walking in with our laptops, man, we got kicked out of more dispensaries than I can ever. Seriously. Imagine. They wouldn't want more exposure, like just from a business sense. Right, they like- didn't want, this is crazy. They didn't want a website. They wanted not, they were like, this is dumb. We don't, what are you doing? We don't need online ordering. We make plenty of money. And Amazon was still a, a very functional, viable company at this time. Like, <laughs> so right? Years, years you know. ago. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. that's not, that's not long ago Crazy. at all. Yeah. And this okay. is how far the industry has come. So my first cost client, I'll never forget this, uh, was higher level of care in Castorville, California, uh, the artichoke capital of the world. The dispensary was the size of my kitchen and I do not have a large kitchen. It was in the back of a head shop. So you literally, there was no sinus. You had to go in the back. And um, I remember sitting down with the manager who's a Navy veteran, by the way. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, uh, the only reason we're going to go with you is because we believe that you, what you say you're going to do is what you're going to do, man. So you've earned our trust. 
And uh, I will never forget. His name is Steven. I will never forget that day. That's a bold was, moment. You you actually visualize that right now, can't you? Oh, my God. I, yeah. I was in that room right now, sitting down. They were counting and packaging up pre-rolls mm-hmm. in the background. So it's like this very strange, surreal moment. We had our laptops thing. out. I'm seeing this uh, featured on Net- Netflix real soon of like uh, <laughs> Silicon Valley, you know, the spinoff. And you're like... <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, one... Client, one cost, we got uh, zero orders on day one. We got one order on the next day, which led to you know three orders the following week. And they stuck with us, and we stuck with them. And we convinced more and more dispensaries and more customers coming on. And now, you know, we have seven hundred thousand registered users on our platform, and uh, tens of millions of orders being processed every single. A month on our platform, and uh, it all started with that, with that zero day sale, and that, and that you earned someone's trust right there. That, and that's it. It was, yeah. it was that was the big lesson for me. It was that you could have a, a great piece of technology, you could have flashy marketing, you have a cool pitch. At the end of the day, though, it's are you trust? Is there trust there between human beings? Bringing it back to what we were talking about earlier, um, and when we take that very seriously here at Jane, and I'm glad I learned that lesson from day one. Yeah. I know there's a number of different models with e-commerce within the cannabis space. There is that Yelp model, there is a Shopify right. model, and there's a third model, and I can't for the life of me find it. So can, uh, you, that, can you go through those three and just kind yeah. of let us do a kind of a high-level overview for yeah. those? Yeah. And, 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 you know, where does, where does Jane fit in? You have, you have three models and you got Jane. And yeah. you know, see, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I'm biased, but hopefully this makes sense to, to mm-hmm. the listeners. The first one is the, that Yelp model, listing service. Um, these are, you know, your first websites out there. They did get, they were courageous enough to step out front and have a, a public facing website where they listed dispensaries. And just like Yelp, yep. now you use Yelp as kind of a directory in the yellow pages. What's their phone number? What's their store hours? But you're not going on Yelp with the intent to purchase or engage. Uh, you might look at the menu, but that's probably about it. Right. And in yeah. Yelp, the menu can be accurate because that restaurant sells the same thing every single day. That dispensary... It's changing all the time. What's available, what's not available. Yeah. So that's the Yelp model. That's the Yelp model. And we know the limitations there. And, and so it was really popular back in 2008. This is 2020. Less so popular, less so kind of... Uh, it's not really creating that much value. This The second model um, that we talk about is the Shopify model. This is... Uh, you know, I can power your website, but just like Shopify, the onus is on you, dispensary, to upload the photo, write the product description, make sure there's no spelling errors, et cetera, et cetera. So if you mess up on that, it's on you. We can't do any of the data we're, cleansing. We're a, we're a conduit here for the sale on that one. Bingo. Very, uh, if, you know, you and I selling beer koozies out of our garage. Love Shopify. Love WooCommerce. Got a Wix website, plugs in, no problem. I sell four different sizes, five different colors. This is easy to maintain. But again, high volume retailer, 500, 600 SKUs in their, in their product line. It's, it's a, it all, really, we've replaced a full-time or you know, two or three headcount for yeah. a dispensary that were, they were literally just hand jamming. When you're paying yeah. bud centers, you want them on the on the on the shop floor, engaging with customers, answering questions. So it was that third model that you were alluding to, mm-hmm. um, which is the kind of what we call the DoorDash model. Okay. So this is the last mile. I, I not only do e-commerce, 
but I also do the last mile as well. And as convenient and as wonderful as that is, it is not a profitable business model. And um, you see that with Uber Eats, DoorDash, the bigger you get, the less profitable actually you become. And so that uh, there was a company out here in California that was trying to do that. And unfortunately, they were kind of proven correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a really weird model to be to be in. And like, you just have to, you got to get market share and scale on that. But even then, you're still even cutting, then, right? your, your fees are just cutting into everything there. And you're like, there's a better way to do this. So that's it. And, 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 um, and so for us, what we try, we're trying to build a, a marketplace. And at the same time, we've learned from the DoorDashes and the Ubers and the Grubhubs, you can't, you can't exploit your supply side of a marketplace. So for us, it's okay. How can we create a model whereby we are in partnership and we, we call our dispensaries partners, mm-hmm. partner success. We, we do, I, I know I mentioned client, but they're really our partners whereby like we're going to give them e-commerce at an extremely valuable cost. They just pay $300 a month all in and they have fully automated e-commerce, all the information they want. Um, and then in, in turn, we're kind of making a trade with them where we can aggregate very valuable information similar to a Nielsen. If you think about what Nielsen's doing. You're getting um, large scale macro aggregate data. Exactly. That's how we're able to subsidize our e-commerce business. And so it's this win-win model, win-win-win model where we're trying to create a win for the dispensaries where we can keep costs very affordable for them they in turn now have fully automated e-commerce. They're getting their customers to order online. It's a lot more convenient for them. Um, and now Jane can serve as the source of truth for this industry. And, and really, it's, it's, we take that job very, very seriously to be good yep. governors of that and be good partners in this ecosystem for the industry. And this is how ultimately we think this industry is going to win, is if we can empower dispensaries, not only with the tool of e-commerce, but also now the information to understand, okay, what products should I be carrying? How should I be pricing? Not on what's going on a thousand miles away or some forecast that some data scientist is predicting, but in real world, real live consumption, real time data in my local community. And we're doing that today. We're telling yeah. in, in all of all days, it's a, it's a wonderful time to help yeah. out where we can tell them, hey, based on live consumption in your local community. We've gone through where you guys are at currently, but like, what do you guys see for the future for your industry? Absolutely. And I, and I honestly don't think we are um, being uh, overly optimistic mm-hmm. when, I, when I say this. And I, and I for context, um, five years ago, I was an entrepreneur of a software company getting kicked out of not just dispensaries, but also banks because I couldn't get a bank account. Because yep. you know, they would say, okay, you're a software company. Here I am, military veteran, MIT. And they're like, okay, cool. This is great. What's the name of your company? And I said, I Heart Jane. And they go to our website and see cannabis. And they say, sorry, we can't give you a bank account. Yeah. Literally yesterday in San Francisco, there was a moratorium on all businesses, except for businesses deemed as essential. Cannabis is one of those essential businesses. And what a, what a, what a world. That's such a paradigm. It's such a weird, such How a weird world. How far have we come? Yeah, really, this is now an essential business. That's amazing. Right? Where in this time of uncertainty, in this time of a lot of fear, um, health concerns, et cetera, you know, this industry is providing medicine for people. And, and you know, it, 
There's going to be a lot of talk of how much money, you know, about business is booming, quote unquote, here in the cannabis industry. At the end of the day, let us not forget that where this industry started, and that's providing people with a product that helps with their well-being, their wellness. Um, and at the end of the day, this is medicine for a lot of, of people. So um, th- that being said, we feel very positive about the future of this industry. You know, bars are closing, but cannabis now, which was deemed 10, 15 years ago, maybe even five years ago as a stigmatized product, as now something that's going to help. Banking changes is a huge I think, thing. I think banking will change. I think retail, period, will change. And I think it will be born here in the cannabis industry. I know it's a bold statement. Mm-hmm. But if you think about where we are going as a society, where we want more and more convenience, we want more and more con- curation. Um, and we do that by going on Amazon. And Amazon's a wonderful company. Don't get me wrong. I, I've used it and it's helping millions of people around the world right now mm-hmm. uh, during these trying times. But when the dust settles, I think people will still want that same level of convenience as Amazon, but for certain products where they can access it in their local communities, I think you're going to see shopping behavior change a little bit and say, man, if I could get the same level of convenience and curation as I do on Amazon, except instead of this product, you know, being in the warehouse, being shipped in an airplane to me, it gets to me in two days. Could this be just delivered to me locally or can I go and pick it up curbside? So, um, you're going to see uh, in, in retail, predominantly everything shifting to more omni-channel, as they call it, this, this online to offline experience. And I think, again, you'll see a lot of those technologies being born out of the cannabis industry because we can't ship an eighth of Blue Dream to you in New Jersey. I think we'll see banking. And that's great because you're also supporting small businesses in your communities as well. So, like, that's a kind of a win-win on that one anyway. So, What a, what a beautiful thing to now yeah. bring other retail verticals outside of the cannabis industry. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, actually, you guys are right at the nexus of all that uh, all that stuff happening. And, you know, there's always been a trend, and I think it's going to be hyper um, picked up, that we're looking to be a very efficient, you know, businesses are going to have to look to be very efficient with their staffing with their overhead with their costs that's it man like um that's so spot on retail you're gonna walk into a a a retail brick and mortar for the experience now you're gonna have you know a retail consultant you're gonna be able to touch the thread of the thing you're gonna be able to you know smell the the cannabis flower whatever taste a, a little sip of beer whatever that is it's gonna be an experience but once you have the product that you want, that you know you want, you will never... You don't need to... You can, you're not you going to wait in line ever again. One lesson that you learned from the military hmm. that you are applying in your business today that you didn't think you would. So as a pilot, um, and I share this with my team on Friday, and it's it's no better time than, than now, but as a pilot, every time you take off, you have to fill out what's known as a risk assessment where you are assessing risk. And I think what the military has taught me is that there's a difference between risk and uncertainty. When I go out on a mission in in an Apache helicopter, I'm identifying the known risks and risks have to be known. Okay, what's the weather like? What's the enemy intel like? Okay, where are my friendly forces? Okay, what's my aircraft? How many hours has it had on the tail rotor? Here are my risks. I'm identifying these risks and risks are inherently negative and you want to mitigate those risks. 
but there's also uncertainty. In uncertainty, you don't know the negatives. And quite frankly, you also don't know the positives that may come out of this. So to run with that metaphor, if I take off on a mission, I don't know what I'm going to encounter. I'm going to do my best, but I really don't know. And as entrepreneurs and at, at, at Jane specifically, we really work hard on delineating risk from uncertainty. We mitigate the risk, but we view uncertainty with open eyes, with presence, with awareness. We don't assign immediately, oh, this is negative because more times than not, as you know, as an entrepreneur, uncertainty creates opportunity behind that. And if we can navigate uncertainty the right way, um, I think we'll get on the other side of this and be better from it and we will have grown from it. And so that's the biggest lesson I, I've, at least the most relevant lesson today. That is such is a great answer. And, and the best entrepreneurs are able to see that, keep their wits about them and lead their team through uncertainty to get to the opportunity and create value for others. Awesome. That's a great answer on that one. That speaks to many different ways too. Uh, two last questions. One, Please. what do you need from the universe right now? And I know that could be a loaded question today. I, um, <laughs> my, my wish for the universe or my ass of the universe, because we're all part of this universe, is that we realize in times like these, what is important and what is not important. And that, um, that love really is important, that taking care of each other is important, that the virus doesn't care whether or not we're Democrat, Republican, from the North, from the South. We like cannabis, we don't. It doesn't, we're competitors, we're not competitors. At the end of the day, we're human beings. Um, be kind. Kindness be is free. Kind, take care of each other. And, and we need more love, truly. That's awesome. More love, less fear. That's a, that's a great wrap up to, to your earlier comments, too. Um, uh, and then the last question, just as far as like industry news goes, is like, where do you get your news from? Who are you listening to? You know, um, I subscribe to some newsletters. Dave mm -hmm. Trong's newsletter is former MedMen. Uh, he's, he's really, really good. Uh, mm -hmm. Our PR firm, Mattyow Communications, sends out a newsletter, which is fantastic. I enjoy that one um, as well, yeah. Yeah, New Cannabis Ventures sends out some very relevant stuff on, on, the, on the public markets. Um, I, I get my news from, you know, I can follow the cannabis feed on, on my Apple News, mm -hmm. which, is, which is great. But ultimately nothing beats talking to my team and talking yep. to my, my, my dispensary partners, brands, investors. That's how I'm getting kind of my news and, and, you know, not all news is the real news and taking yes. different data points and then different. ultimately making your own decision is, is what I try to do. That's awesome. Okay. I always ask every, uh, every CEO I interview, like, where do they Great. get, who are they listening to? And so many people say their team, I appreciate you sharing some of those personal details of the Almond brothers and, um, Grape Jolly Ranchers and, uh, you know, especially, and also some of your more challenging times, you know, serving Shit. our country. So thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for listening to Lit Up, a founder's journey. Links from today's episode are available in our show notes. If you received any value from today's episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. You can connect with us on social media at Lit Up Founders or email us at feedback at litupmedia.com. I'm your host, Brian Weber. Thanks for sharing the journey.